listening to the Mouthful of Graffiti podcast, affectionately known as The Mog, an open forum and promotional outlet for budding artists and creatives from all across the Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Brad Cox, not necessarily affectionately known as anything other than Brad Cox, but I'm here all the same. Let's see who and what we're chewing on today on The Mog. Friends, East Coastians, and country men and women of all ages, welcome to the Mog. As always, links for our guests will be made available in the description, and a song or some type of promotional feature will be tacked on to the end of each episode. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors, Vagabond Sandwich Company, Capricos Books, Musicland, Black Eyed Susie's, Double Groove Brewing, Baltimore Decal Gal, and Reb Records. Remember to love local, support local, and to eat and drink local. Don't forget to use discount code Mog. Pod for a 10% discount at Capricos Books. Everyone knows you can't stop by Main Street Bel Air without grabbing one of Black Eyed Susie's legendary orange crushes and a killer lunch or dinner. Black Eyed Susie's has been supporting local for a long time. It's your one-stop spot for original and cover entertainment and an afternoon or evening out with friends on their rooftop deck. If you haven't heard, there's something very special about Double Groove Brewing. It's a melting pot of personalities, ages, loves, interests, and musical tastes. There are hippies, professionals, rockers, folk artists, friends and families here. Throw in the most delicious and satisfying craft beer on the planet and this place is complete magic. They are tireless supporters of the local talent. Stop by their location in Forest Hill for a pint and a night out with friends. This just in, Get the Let Out, a celebration of the Mighty Zephyr coming to the APG FCU Arena on April 29th at 7.30 p.m. For tickets, visit apgfcuarena.com. First Friday's returns to downtown Bel Air on May 6th. The Bel Air Downtown Alliance is preparing for another exciting year of music and community in the downtown Bel Air area. This county favorite will run through October on the first Friday of every month. And Hartford Dance Theater's The Wizard of Oz is coming to the Chesapeake Theater on May 13th, 14th, and 15th. For tickets and information, visit tickets.harford.edu. Jimmy Haha, otherwise known as Jimmy Davies and occasionally as James Laughter, is an Annapolis-based musician and founder and creative director for Upstart Magazine. He's an artist, a father, and for lack of a better word, a legend in the Mid-Atlantic region. He's released countless albums, mainly under the bands Jimmy's Chicken Shack, Jarflies, and Men the Hollow, to name a few, but his roots go even deeper than that. He's a man who's worn a lot of hats, and if his represent album is any indication, perhaps a lot of faces in an attempt to reframe the world through his artistic lens. His talent is unyielding, and I couldn't be happier to have him on the show. Join me in welcoming the Jimmy Haha to the Mog. Jimmy Haha, welcome to the Mouthful of Graffiti podcast. How are you doing today? Awesome. So it's been a rather traumatic two weeks for you at this point. We're about two weeks delayed here because you've had a uh, a tooth surgery of sorts. Oh, yeah. Fun stuff. Getting old is awesome. So <laughs> What did you have going on? Because I did see the picture on Facebook with that actually a beautiful white tooth. A monster of a tooth, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I ended up having a root canal in the top of my mouth, and that went fine. But then a couple of days later, I had to go to the emergency room in the early morning. My wife was, insisted I go. She was a, she used to be a dental assistant. And uh, she's like, you don't mess around with the pain that you're having right now. But I was having this pain here. Okay. So I went to the emergency room and they gave me Percocets and, you know, just said, go see somebody. <laughs> right, right. 
And uh, the Percocet was nice. Uh, it fixed, it, at least it, it numbed me for a little bit. And then, uh, yeah, I had to get a tooth extracted from the lower part. But it's weird that this pain was went all the way up into here. Oh, it's crazy. So, yeah, they, they, yanked a, they yanked one on me. As a vocalist, did you think maybe you just pulled a muscle in your mouth or something like that? Or <laughs> No, I run my mouth all the time. So... <laughs> Fair enough. And no, it was. I, I knew it was, you know, related to one of my teeth. But but I had this that that perfectly looking tooth. Yes. Um. It, it had a a fracture in it, and it get the nerve was totally oh. dead. So it it, it, I, it had a crack through it, and I you know, didn't know. So yeah, it was, it was fun stuff. I feel like as a as a child of the '80s, if they yanked one of mine out. It would look like that silver coating uh, around like a Hershey kiss because it's so silver and yours look like a pristine tooth. But now we know there was a crack. It looked it looked real pretty in that angle. But yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was no good. So how far away are you right now from the, the couch concert room? Because I feel like we're close right there. OK, so we're just going to go ahead and do a live performance and call it a podcast at this point. <laughs> Obviously, necessity is the mother of invention. Did you this is all because of COVID? I, you know, obviously, as an artist yourself, uh, you know, you have the magazine, you've got the bands, you've got yeah. your, your artwork. How did COVID impact you? It had to impact you more so than somebody that's like sitting in a cubicle that maybe would have had the opportunity to work from home. It's interesting. You know, so Upstart Annapolis, my magazine, I shut it straight down. Because it runs on advertising. So I was like, all right, this magazine's closed for however long. And ended up being 18 months it was closed for. But the thing is, it's a startup every three months anyway. Because I sell all the ads for the magazine. You know, we, we put the thing together. It comes out every three months. And then I start over again. I don't yeah. like sellings in advance or anything. I don't like doing stuff like that. I just kind of want to do one at a time. And uh, so... Really, it was just like, all right, well, I'm just not doing this now. <laughs> right. And with, with, you know, being, I was able to paint pictures for people, which was cool. Um, and what it came down to was being resourceful. And uh, my friend, Joey Harkham, um, he, he posted that he was going online and there was, he was doing a virtual tip jar. And, and I had never gone live on Facebook before. Yeah. And I said I never was going to do it probably like two or three years ago. I was like, I'm never doing that. You have to come to a show. Right, right. (laughs) Never say never is is the lesson learned. But, you know, I think people like me, I think we're kind of more acclimated to changes like that because we've been flying by the seat of our pants our whole lives. I mean, it's like, you know, musicians and artists especially have to always think on their feet and then deal. I mean, there's stuff thrown at you every week and month. And so it's like... Yeah, it was just like, okay, well, now this is what's happening. (laughs) Well, on the other front, I will tell you, I used to work at the Baltimore Sun for seven years selling advertising space, so I can totally relate to that. I have no idea how those sales reps sustained through that. That had to be horrible. That was, you know, I mean, it's a bummer. But I think, honestly, people in cubicles had it worse, in a sense, because... yeah. They're so used to, you know, have a life that they're used to a, a schedule and a, and a, you know, regimen. And, and then all of a sudden they're, they're stuck at home. And, and now maybe some people love that, but I think a lot of people were just like, ah, I'm, I'm losing my mind. You know, you do that, something like that for your life. It's, they, 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 it's pulled out from you. I mean, the same thing happened in a sense because we couldn't play gigs and stuff right. like that. But again, I, I, you know, it was okay. Now what I, I just got to figure out how to make it through this next month or 
two months or three months or two years. <laughs> kind of now, were you, were you nervous doing the live streams at all? Because I mean, obviously you've been doing it for a long time. Do you even get nervous at this point? So I don't, I don't get nervous going on a stage yeah. if there's thousands of people. Actually, if there's less people, I get, I would say, you know, if like I'm playing in a room of 10 people, right? There's, I would be more nervous than 10,000 people easily. But uh, yeah, it was weird. The first one I did, I was total anxiety. I mean, I, it, <laughs> I was, I, yeah. I, and I even, you know, I was telling my wife, I was like, I, this is so weird that I have butterflies and I'm playing, I'm gonna, about to play to a camera, you know? It was, it was right, weird. but like you said, it's, it's, it's a small amount of people compared to a big show. Like if you're playing record, there are three or 400 people there, but you're playing these, these streams, it could be 20 to 50 people. So it is yeah. intimate and it's not the best mix per se. Are you just using like a, a computer microphone or? Well, so when I first started, I, I was just using, yeah, the, the, yeah, I have an Apple laptop and I was just using a little condenser mic from there and the camera from there. And, and you know, I had a lot of people tune in on the first one. Actually, the first couple, first few weeks, they were, I mean, it was crazy how many people yeah. dialed in. And, but then I ended up getting a little um, camera and it's a, what is it called? It's made by a company, Zoom, not Zoom, the 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 uh, online thing, but Zoom uh, audio stuff. It's a little Q2N. Okay. It's cool, man. It's got a great camera and it's got a little mic and, you know, it works. It's made for recording music and bands and stuff, so. I actually use a Zoom X8, not this Zoom, and it's it's a great product. That's what I typically do with the podcast through. But yeah, Zoom's a great product. Yeah, I mean, it was a couple hundred bucks, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to be, clearly, I'm going to be doing this for a while. I might as well make it look a little better and sound a little better. So, because I'm not playing through any amplification. I'm just straight up acoustic guitar in my voice. You know, it's like ambient room. So, you know, I... It, and you're not just doing like your own songs. You're doing covers too. Some of them are obscure covers, but I've even heard you do, I think ACDC maybe even once. Yeah. I mean, at first I was just doing all my own songs. And then eventually I was like, you know, I, 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 I think I wanted to play, like I was listening to a lot of yacht rock driving around, you know, like 70s. Paul and Oates. Kind of, yeah. And I was like, man, I, I've never learned any, I've never really learned many songs. I've just not been my thing. Right. So I was like, you know what? I'll, Maybe I'll learn a couple. And then I started going, okay, well, maybe I'll just do half and half. I'll do, you know, do half kind of songs that I picked that week and learn and then do half of my songs. It became really fun. I, I mean, I, I didn't learn. I can't say I learned these songs because I'd create a sheet and I'd sit there and stare at my computer and, you know, go through the chords and read the lyrics. I mean, some of the songs I knew, obviously. And then right. some I was like, oh, that's what that lyric says that I've been singing wrong for the past 35 <laughs> years. But, I like uh, my lyric better. <laughs> so but it, it was you know it's, i mean i look back and it's you know a couple hundred songs i don't know how many it was but it's quite a lot it was yeah man cool. so i remember the first time i think i've told you this story that i saw your band perform now in high school everybody was passing around salmonella envelope that was that was a big deal for us you know yeah. especially you being a local guy at that time That's and awesome. uh, <laughs> i remember seeing you at the the 98 rock shiznit Oh, I yeah. originally went to see, I think it was Slash's Blues Ball. Sla Slash's Snake Pit, actually. Okay, so it was but Snake Pit. And, and and there was also a, a little band playing early in the day. I think they were called Matchbox 25. Yep. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, Matchbox it, 20 was there. Matchbox 20, yeah, you have to, duh. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that was funny because I remember, you know, just checking them out. And then, God, they, they did all right. Yeah, they did. And then <laughs> I, I think across the, the field was another stage. And that was... 
I guess it was like bands like Psychotica and just like there was some other bands over there. I remember saying it, but I remember leaving the show and thinking, I want to get up on that stage at some point. This is back in like 1997 or eight, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. And in 2003 or four, we won a contest through Matt Davis to play with Jimmy's Chicken Shack. (laughs) And it was it was wild. I remember talking to you briefly backstage while you were warming up and it was kind of surreal. Did you ever have an opportunity? Because I know you've played with a lot of bands where you played with somebody that you looked up to and it was just kind of like, man, I can't believe that I'm here. I mean, I think it probably happened all the time in a sense. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, some of the bands that we played with, I was either their age or, you know, older, actually. I mean, you know, like the, the guys from 311, when we went out to it, I'm older than them. <laughs> um, Are you really? Yeah. So, I, but I, you know, and I, I'd met them. Uh, I think I met them during their second record. I think it was Grassroots Tour that I met them in front of the old 8x10. But then, you know, like, I did. We did go on tour with Jackal on one of the shows. Uh, Brian Johnson from ACDC wrote a Harley out on the stage. So of course, with Brian Johnson backstage after that, totally rad. Because I mean, I I saw Back in Black at the Capitol oh. Center. You know, <laughs> it was like I remember when Back in Black came out. I mean, we used to have all ACDC. It's so funny because when we were young, that was like, oh, this is raw and hard kind of sound. And now it's like you listen to it, it's like blues with a little dirt <laughs> it's so funny how that that time changes but man it was cool to have you know to be like ah oh, this is brian johnson man i mean i can't tell you how many times i was in my bedroom listening to back in black and and highway to hell and all those records man <laughs> so cool. talk to me about those early days like when you were playing hair like you played the original hammerjacks correct yep. yep and like what was the trajectory like for you because Back then, it seemed like most bands sounded like local bands. Their recording sounded local. Their stage show was rather local. But you always kind of were a step uh, above that. And somewhere along the lines, you were playing Hammerjacks. And then you're, you're signed to Rocket. Was it Rocket Records? It was Rocket Records, yeah, yeah. What was all that like? And, ha- and how did that come about? Well, I mean, I played in a band from 87 to like 91 or two. Is this the post-punk band? No, no, it was it was a band called Ten Times Big, and actually, okay. we were we went through a few different phases within that five years. And at first, we were kind of a little like early REM kind of sound, and then it went. We kind of had took on this bit of a like a U two ish sound, and then ended up it being this mess of a sound that I don't even know what you could call it because it was all over the place. But we always were original band, and so we did that for five years. And we and and we played Hammerjacks, and we played. You know uh, the Bayou and uh, the old Nine Thirty Club, and so and we toured up and down the East Coast, and that, that kind of helped shape a little bit of what I was kind of getting ready to get into that I didn't know I was going to get into. And once <laughs> once Chicken Shack started, I mean our recordings didn't sound good. The, I think the music was just cool. You know, it was just good. I mean, obviously the player, the guys that play in the band were were all great musicians, and even though we. We were horrible with tempos and and the sound. I mean, we recorded the record for first like tape for four hundred bucks, and the next one six hundred bucks, and you know, so it was they were not the best sounding sonically, but it, it caught some kind of a moment. And then, but we just start we played and and you know I'd look back on it and realize how quick it was. I mean, yeah. we 
You know, started out 92, 93-ish. As, and, and actually, it was just first an acoustic duo. And then we got our, my second drummer from 10 Times Big, Jim Chaney. We got him, and he said, oh, I know a bass player. And we, the first practice we got together was at, at um, Jim Chaney's mom's house. And and right away, I, I told him, I, we played one practice just jamming. And I was like, we're going to get signed. And they thought I was out of my mind. And at that time, that was kind of the thing. It's like, oh, get signed. You know, right. go big. So... I was like, we're, we're going to get signed. And then, you know, I started Foul Records because uh, we didn't have a label. And Ian Mackay from Fugazi, had, I read an article and he said, don't send me your record if I don't know you because I'm not going to put it out. I'm Start your own label. And I was like, oh, OK. Sound yeah. advice. <laughs> so I started Foul Records and, you know, we just started playing as much as we could anywhere we could for any amount of money in front of any band. We'd open up for cover bands. We'd open up for blues bands, hardcore bands that I mean, like hardcore, like next step up yeah. and stuff like that. You know, it's like our first shows were we played the Grog and Tankard opening up for next step up with a bunch of hardcore bands, you know. So and then then we'd play, you know, with Laughing Colors, who had a great crowd and, and you know, a really, you know, great cover band. Yeah. And. and so we just played with everybody we could. And I had relationships from like playing um, before. So, I, you know, we my old band would play with Almighty Senators. So Chicken Shack would start playing with them. And um, yeah, just kind of, I realized it was only about three years of gigging before we, we got signed. And that's pretty quick. It is. It, it's okay. funny that you're talking about the way, like the dream we all had as kids. It was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna get signed, and then it's all just gonna happen. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it, and it doesn't work like that. It didn't work like that then, really, and it really doesn't work like that now. Yeah, it never had. Yeah, I mean, as for some, it does. I mean, yeah, but, but you know, it, it was definitely. It was. I know it was a lot of work, and 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 those three years felt like an eternity. Three or four years, whatever it was, it felt like an eternity. But I mean, we really did work our asses off, and we played a ton. I mean, we were also thought outside of the box. We would create our own tickets and and print out these really nice tickets and sell them before shows. We would, you know, really. I would go off on flyers and I was always in uh, office depot making flyers and that I'd go to the clubs and you'd have to flyer the club yourself. You can, you can just, and then, but we would like a buddy would rent a flatbed and we'd pull it up into RFK's parking lot while the Grateful Dead or Pink Floyd were playing. And we'd just start playing music and selling tapes and the cops would come and be like, what are you doing? And we're like, Oh, we'll, we'll stop. And they'd walk away and we'd start playing again. And, there's still people who go, I saw you open up for Pink Floyd outside. <laughs> so, so with your new record, Seconds, are you going to even go in the direction of labels or are you just going to keep it with Foul Records? Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, right now, I guess we're going to put it out you know, on Foul Records, but I'm, I'm not adverse to having a, a label take it on if it was the right kind of a situation, the right kind of a deal, you know. But I, at this point, like making that record i remember one we were making it and we we made it for us really i mean obviously we want people to hear it and like it but sure but we were like it doesn't matter if it does anything we we're making this like i really wanted to make it for for me and the, you know all the guys in the band it was just a fun thing to do and it, it was now i, I mean I, that's probably one of my favorite records i've ever made so really yeah, yeah, it's really I really love it. And yeah. uh, Jim Wirt, who produced it, he you know produced our Bring Your Own Stereo record. Uh, he produced my Men the Hollow record, that my solo record, and then 
I mean, he did the first, he did Incubus Science and, you know, Hoobas. I mean, he's, you know, done amazing records. He said it's his favorite rock record he's ever recorded. Was there ever. like a, a, like a impetus moment where you're like, you know what, we're doing this. Like, because it's been a long time since Fail on Q. Yeah, <laughs> 12 years. But I noticed when you started doing those couch concerts that, you were getting a like people were swarming those. So was it partly to do with that? Like you saw that there was all this interest, like, man, maybe we should do a record. I don't know. I mean, we were always, I mean, it's weird to think about because we go back and some of the, de- we started demoing stuff years and years ago. Okay. Because my drummer has a studio, uh, Jerome has a studio in Baltimore and he records a lot of bands, but we'd go in every once in a while and mess around with stuff. And I just wasn't in the place to, to, to create a record. I, I a lot of, a lot of the things that I was thinking, I just didn't want to necessarily share. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and right. so when COVID hit and I started riding a bike, I started losing weight, getting a little healthier, having a better attitude about things. And and then it, I was like, I, I guess it was almost about a year. It was close to a year that COVID was in. And, and we, had, we had started doing these, you know, we did some live streams from his studio for Chicken Shack. Those were really good. And those were fun. They sounded yeah. great, you know, because we're in a studio. We, we basically made live record with video, right. you know. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And, and, and it was necessary. It was like, God, it was, it was those little beacons that got you through the long spans of time where you couldn't see people. And, uh, and then it was like, you know, it was probably about a year from when COVID hit. It was like... I've just wanted to, I said, let's just come up every week. Let's just get together every single week, no matter what, one day a week and just hash out some, some ideas, come up with 10 songs. You know, we'll pick 10 of the best songs out of what, and, and I had already talked, I, when I decided that I called Jim Wirt and he's like, dude, I'm down. I want to make this record. So, you know, I love working with that guy and I hate recording. I absolutely can't stand recording, but I love, really? I love working with him. I love recording with him. And yeah, I, I don't like like it's <laughs> recording is like it's you're constantly like rehashing or reliving the past in a weird way. I don't True. know, or, or trying to to corral something that to me I just like. I like playing shows. I like having music happen and then never happen again. Even if it's the same song, it's there's yeah. always something different about it. You know, there's some different feeling or whatever. So recording and trying to be perfect and. Yeah, I don't know. It's something about it I just can't stand. But this I love wasn't something I was going to originally ask you, but I'm actually curious what the recording process was like for you in the early days. Because I remember for me, it was like you would cut the rhythm guitar with the drummer and then you would do your overdubs. Typically, there wasn't even a metronome involved. It was just basically like, okay, this is we played through the song. Now let's add the overdubs. But now it's like it's so refined and it's so clean. And once you start that process, there's no going back. Yeah, well, so the first two tapes that we did, which were Chicken Scratch, and then the second tape was uh, Spitburger Lottery, we put those on the two-for-one CD, and we reversed them so that the second tape is actually the beginning of that CD, and then the first tape is the second half of the CD. Both of those, we just played live in the studio. I mean, we had 400 or 600 bucks. I was like, the first one we did at Hound Sound with Mark Strazza, he, Straz was a... The Almighty Senator Sound guy, and he, he died years ago, but he had a little studio in a like a basement kind of building in Baltimore. Yeah. And then, I mean, you know, we're like, oh, we could come up with, I don't know, maybe 600 bucks or something. And he, he's, he's like, all right, I'll do it, man. I just want to record you guys. And so we banged it out live. And then the second tape we did at this place called The Mansion in Annapolis, 
which was this old house that had like no running water or it, 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 a bunch of friends lived there like uh, Ruben from Swamp Candy and Jim Cullen who works at PRS a bunch of cool people lived in this house and Mike Forjon was one of the guys there the main guy there and he just had a I don't know a, like a eight track you know reel to reel and we just set up in different rooms and played it all live. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. And you guys kind of came in to the the um, the music scene as 80s was kind of going out. Yeah, well, yeah, it was a mid, yeah, it was early 90s, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That had to be kind of a cool time because you're kind of like charting the new course that the other guys aren't really doing yet. But also, did you feel like maybe like, is this going to work the way we think it's going to work? Or were you confident in your music or... I mean, honestly, the first I, I, I just knew the first time we played together, the, those original guys that, you know, we had these ideas that, you know, Jim McDonough and I had come up with some acoustic songs and we had played sets here and there in Annapolis. And they were yeah. good songs. Sitting with the dog was one of them. We It was written on acoustic guitar. But but once we played together, I, you know, I was just like, we're getting signed. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. Because, I mean, it, Jim Chaney is a great drummer, and he, t- he approaches drums in a really different way, but a great drummer, hard player. And Jim McDonough is just such a clever and interesting guitar player. Che was just phenomenal bass player. And, I mean, everybody started playing, and I was just like, you know, this doesn't sound like anybody, first of all. Yeah. It didn't really, you know, and, and I th- that for me is the most important thing is that, we, you know, we didn't sound like, oh, this, okay, this band, obviously this band sounds like this band, you know what I mean? Or this is the genre that they're in. But uh, it was always hard for people to place this. And as a result, I think that's why we worked well with so many different bands and we would be able to borrow from different crowds, you know, yeah. to create our own kind of misfit <laughs> collection. <laughs> so where did it all start for you? Like, who were some of your influences? Oh, growing up? Yeah. I mean, I think the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand was the first song I recognized. And I was in kindergartens on a swing set with a girl next to me. And then, uh, and then like the Beach Boys, love the Beach Boys. And then got into like, as I got into a teenage years, got into Black Sabbath. All bands that start with B, basically. The okay, Beatles, so Beatles, Beach, Beach Boys, Boys, Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath, Bob Marley, and Bad Brains. So, yeah, uh, and all two lucky numbers. So, so you know, if, if, I think if you if you take all of those bands, Beatles, Beach Boys, Black Sabbath, Bob Marley, and Bad Brains, that's uh, I think what we kind of sound like. Well, when, when did you start playing like at like an instrument, like doing chorus early on? Because you've always oh. had the voice. Oh, I mean, well, I played piano as a little kid, you know, okay. a little bit, you know, doing ding, 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 playing the, the entertainer, uh, you know, and that, but I always liked music and then, but I could sing, I, my parents busted in my room, like snuck in one time, I think I was seven years old and singing to a, a Beach Boys record. And I mean, uh, when I was in first grade, I went in front of my whole school for a talent show and sang an acapella version of a Beach Boys song. So I think that was probably like first oh. grade. First grade, yeah, I was. Yeah, see, was most first, most of us aren't doing that. Yeah, it was first to eighth grade, and I made a fake surfboard and walked out, and I just sang this song called "Surf" and uh, and yeah, sang in front. And I, I, there's a tape somewhere still of it, and I, you know, the whole everybody cheers, and I was just like, "That's kind of cool." Yeah, <laughs> I'm addicted. <laughs> Sign me played, up. Yeah, I played trumpet a little, but I didn't start playing guitar till I tried at ten years old, but that didn't really take. And then when I was twelve, I I really kind of got into playing guitar, and I, I, you know I was learning from these. I, I went I think for like six months, 
to this guy. It was called the Guitar Man. And you so were your parents were they supportive of? Oh yeah, they drive me to, up to Crofton from Bowie. They take me to Guitar Man every week. I'd play. I'd pay ten bucks for a half an hour, and he'd. I'd go. I want to learn these songs, like a Yes song, or a, a, you know, I'd bring in records, and he'd listen to them and figure them out. And then eventually, I was like, Oh wait, I can sit in my house and listen to this and figure it out because I had a right. good, yeah. It was. I mean, I always kind of just wrote my own songs. I just. I, I figured out at a young age. I just if I was going to do it, I had to. If I wanted to be one of these people that I was looking at the album, you know. I have to do what they're doing. I can't learn these songs. I've got to write my own songs and make my own things. So, you know, when I, I got expelled from school when I was 15, and that's the, the day I started singing and playing at the same time, because <laughs> I'd never necessarily done that. And then. And your approach to, to writing on the guitar is, is kind of unique. Like you do a lot of like string skipping, I've noticed. It's because I don't know what I'm doing. No, you do. It's very good, man. No, I, no, I don't. I, I really don't. I, it's funny because well, you're not doing like campfire songs. You're, you're. They're very intricate. Yeah, but that I, the the reason is because I have zero idea of what I'm doing. I mean, all right. You know, I have I have friends who are guitar players, and they know. I mean, I didn't know the names of the strings for decades. I just didn't pay attention. I didn't care. I knew I, the only thing I knew was the color of the ball that, that the different strings had for the XLs, the Diodarios. But I didn't remember the names of the strings, I, and <laughs> I just didn't care. But like, there's people who know what they're doing. Like, and what I've found out now, if I sit and I go, ah, oh, take an old song, and I'll be like. Oh, this is why, you know, when Matt joined the band, he said, I, how did you play that? Why did I figured that out? It was so much harder than the way you do it. It's because I, I wasn't doing something in first position or, you know, and I guess I skip strings. I like to do a lot of one and two finger things too and have those open strings. But I've noticed that like what I thought was like kind of interesting, and I guess it was the way I was approaching it, was just an A chord. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> So I had this girl on the podcast recently. Her name is Melanie Hemling. And I saw her at an open mic. So I had her on the show and it was the same kind of thing. I was like, you're playing all kinds of like wild chords. Like what, what, what are you playing? She's like, I have no idea. No idea. I, I still look at the guitar and it's still an anomaly to me. It's like, there's lines that go this way and lines that go that way. And, <laughs> right. and, and if I'm playing a solo, like I, I'm just tripping my way through it and hoping I don't hit a honker. And if I do, I got to find my way out of the honker. But yeah, I, I just you're and, one and, you know, part away. You're you're good. <laughs> I wish I, I I do wish I you know learned in a sense a certain amount of theory or be able to communicate the thing. I mean, I can communicate it in a different way, and obviously I can hear. I have a good ear, but yeah. But like I, there, you know, there's guitar players who are like could go play with any band. That's not my gig. <laughs> if I'm not playing my own music, I'm not going to be playing with anybody. <laughs> That's that's Frank Rachowski. He was just on recently too, and oh, he yeah. played with you. Yeah, he's played some shows with us. Yeah, absolutely. So going back and doing kind of the research for this, I heard the cover of Waiting Room on Fail on Q. <laughs> and and all of a sudden, like it's never an influence that I've heard you talk about, but Fugazi is is that one of your influences? Because that voice is, is similar in a sense. You fit right in there with that. Well, so it's way, I found out about that kind of stuff way later. I wasn't into the hardcore DC scene, though we would play with DC hardcore bands. And we played with the Out Crowd, and that's um, Todd Moore, who's part, part of H2O. And But the Out Crowd was a band from, you know, South, uh, what was it, Southern Maryland. And, and I remember seeing them and going, man, I, I love the energy and the sound of this. But we played totally different kind of music. And I, I never listened younger, when I was younger, I didn't listen to a lot of punk rock at all. I was... A, you know, I listened to the 
like the clash or, or right. you know, police, but it was, it was always, it always had to have some hook to it. And hardcore music never really hooked me, but Fugazi, I mean, th- there's some songs that just got some hooks, no matter how anti, you know, music business it wants to be, how rebellious right. it wants to be. There's some catchy shit. <laughs> if they would have yeah. just done some of the interviews, like they wouldn't do interviews in, in magazines like Rolling Stone because they wouldn't do it because, uh, well, there's an ad for like Jack Daniels or I whatever. Love it. I, yeah. I mean, I, it, the guy is so admirable. And honestly, I'd never done, we'd never rec- played a cover. Jimmy Shigashek had never played a cover. And it's like, well, if we're going to play a cover, we got to do something that's like sacrilegious. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like the, something you just don't touch because it's just so absolutely sacred. Like, like stairway or something. Exactly. And that's, and it's funny because when I talked to Ian, about it, I, I said it, <laughs> and I said stairway. It's like it's our generation stairway to heaven, man. It's like you don't you don't try to mess with that song, and that's why we wanted to do it. <laughs> the chicken check has a funkier element to it. Yeah, were you a, a Faith No More guy at all? I liked a couple songs. I mean, I was yeah. more of like Fishbone kind of thing, twenty four seven spies. But but I don't think I've ever been like so deep into any one thing i mean i just you know i'd listen to the grateful dead and then listen to fusion and i mean my favorite band is steely dan is it really absolutely when without question I, if you told me i could only listen to one band, I'd, I'd pick steely dan and like listen to asia and you know the royal scam and and um katie lied those records are perfect and their lyrics are brilliant the music's fantastic it's a so little Steely Dan every- is your desert island uh, band. Yeah, man, it really is. Who would have known? <laughs> but for this podcast, now everybody knows. And I, I think it's because think of what they do stylistically. I mean, they, they were a genre busting band. It's like you know these crazy jazz musicians working with these crazy rock musicians. You know, writing pop songs, but then totally not pop, like jazz rock songs, and it was confused and they've got elements of reggae in there they've got elements of of hard like you know trippy rock like pink floyd ish and it's just a little, little of everything man you listen to that song asia or the whole record asia it's perfect front to back it's just I don't so know. another band like that is uh, a band called sticks which i i kind of flew off the handle paradise on. theater man how was that Sticks, Paradise Theater. I know. And, and I think my issue with Sticks, because they, they cover the gamut, too, was the fact that you had Tommy Shaw and you had Dennis DeYoung, and they basically were polar opposites. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, wh- which band are we going to be here? Like, you never knew what you were getting, which is kind of cool, but at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I grew, I grew up definitely listening to Paradise Theater when I was a little kid. You know, it's like the Eagles' greatest hits, that of... Uh, Elton John's greatest hits and James Taylor's greatest hits and then Crosby, Stills and Nash and Neil Young and then, you know, and then Black Sabbath and ACDC and the harder, you know, kind of the harder stuff back then, you know, and it wasn't until much later that, you know, I really like fell in love with stuff like Fugazi or, and I'm not that versed in their music. I mean, you know, I don't know all their albums, but, but like, or when ministry lost all their keyboards and just played just brutal music. Like, I didn't even know that happened. Ministry. I'm going to have to check that out. Well, ministry, the first record Twitch is all like electronica. It's like, it's like keyboardy eighties music. But I know, it, but you're saying at, the, at a certain point, they got rid of all that ministry. Yeah. You've never listened to like stigmata or so what, or, 
or burning inside. I, I'm making notes now. Oh my god, it's it's magic. Which is weird it's a magical too because catharsis. It's oh, weird. But- I have an album called Stignation, which was basically if the entire nation was inflicted with stigmata at the same time. So there's a record. There's a live record, and it's called um, "Sorry You Didn't Feel Like." Or, wait, let me let me see if I. It's like something like "Sorry You Couldn't Make It Out" or "Sorry You." Didn't feel like making it out, and it's a pic. It's a picture of a crash test dummy who's smashed his head into a into a windshield of a car. So it's it's really fun. But I'm telling you, dude, front I'm to back, it. it is the most brutal. I mean, I used to blast that and just rage by myself. If I, especially when we first early days of the it. band, I, I'd deal with music business stuff, and and I'd either grab a bat and go beat this couch that was in our backyard, or I'd throw on that ministry record and just. This sounds like it's like right up my alley, and I, I totally missed it. Oh my god, you're gonna love me for it, dude! All it's right, so well, good. Psalm 69, great album. I mean, there's just some that one I've heard. So there's the, the stuff before. I mean, when you hear Twitch, to me, I, I can't stand that. I don't like anything Ministry keyboard. Some people are like, I like Ministry keyboard stuff. I'm like, no, it's yeah. I, I, I want the brutal guitars and the drums and the loops and that Al Jorgensen just singing. Shit, you just can't even understand half the time. It's just like fantastic. Rah! Yeah, burning inside, man. That, that's one of the coolest songs ever. You're obviously on the cusp of a new record. I did want to talk about that a little bit, just to like really, you know, get everybody excited about it. So, where did the idea for the album "Seconds" the title come from? So it just kind of revealed itself. I mean, I I was trying to explain to the guys because we'd never, I mean, uh, Christian and Jerome, we made Fail on Q 12 years ago, 13 years ago now, but Island, we'd never made a record with Island. And, um, I, you know, I would just wanted the songs to reveal themselves. Whoever wrote what, it didn't matter. I, I, you know, and so we started writing tunes in different formats and, you know, sometimes it'd be me and Island. There was a couple times where Jerome and I wrote a tune. There's some some stuff that, Drum and Island would start, and then we'd all kind of pull in together. Some we wrote yeah. all together. Some I, you know, there's songs that I had already written and wanted them to play on, and we just threw them all together. And then as we were letting the collection of songs whittle itself down into ten songs, then it was like, okay, well, where is this going, and what does it feel like lyrically? And then it all started to reveal itself to me, and I was like, ah. And it was, I guess, yeah. a moment where I was like, here's the order of the songs. And this is the name of it. And it's a, it became a, it was a bit of a concept record, the, the way it kind of showed itself to me. And I, I wanted to, in a sense, relive those times when I was a kid in my room down in the basement of our split foyer with the album cover open and that my big stereo playing and, and just like, you know, <laughs> the good old days getting lost in a record, you know, and yeah. My favorite records like that, I mean, you know, Pink Floyd, The Wall, or, you know, there's so many cool records that you could just do that to and just totally lose yourself to. And, uh, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, of course, as well, but more than Pink Floyd bands. But but I wanted that that kind of, that concept, I wanted there to be a journey, and that I, I, it, it started to reveal itself. And I, I told the guys when we were in the studio, I was like, or right before we got to the studio, I think I, I said, here's the order. And they at first didn't necessarily know why or what. And, but as we were working on it, they started to get it and realize it. And now I, I don't think we could hear the songs in a different order the way they, you know what I mean? It's That's like, cool. Yeah, it's really fun. 
when you launched that Kickstarter, were you anticipating that kind of support? Because I mean, it kicked ass. We did really well. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I, I never, I think I learned a long time ago to not have expectations and then I don't get upset, don't get uh, disappointed. (laughs) So, you know, I did one for the men, the hollow record. And I was really surprised at how well that went. And I was like, oh, we'll try it again. And I, it might even work better because it's Jimmy's Chicken Shack and you got a couple other guys helping to push it and promote it. And, you know, it's the band name instead of just me doing a solo record. And so, yeah, when, when it started to take off, I was like, yes. You know, that's a weird thing that you're bringing up because I've noticed that if I put out music, because all of my bands have started as solo projects. Right. If I put out the music under one of the, the brand names, people are more inclined to listen to it. But if I put it out under Brad Cox, people are like, eh. Yeah, it's it's just the way, you know, I, I mean, I guess it's the way of branding. And yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I, it's the music industry and the way public perception kind of ingests art in itself, not just music is beyond me. I mean, there's no explaining it. I just, I just realized a long time ago, I'm just going to make stuff. And hopefully there's enough people out there that a few of them will like it. <laughs> Now, on Represent or Represent, you had Aaron Lewis on, uh, is it Falling Out or Falling yeah, Out? Yeah. Do you have any guests on this that you're allowed to reveal or any? On any this surpri- record? Yeah. No, we don't. Well, you know, we thought about it. We were, I was writing a tune. It's kind of like a reggae song or a bit of a reggae. It's got a reggae kind of lope. And I wanted to get, um, Brandon Hardesty from Bumpin' Uglies to do a verse and Joey Harkham to do a verse and my buddy Tef uh, to do a, uh, like a rap verse and then uh, and uh, Howie from Ballyhoo, you know, and I was yeah. going to get all these different takes of a verse on this one kind of idea of this song. And, you know, we were going to put it on the record, but then it just it just kind of decided it didn't want to be on the record. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, yeah. I, th- I think everything fell into place the way it should. I still want to do that song. I still want those guys on it. But yeah, it, it was just the four of us, man, just banged it out. You could do it at a show. You know, you could bring Howie up there. You know, Well, it'd be fun. Yeah. I mean, well, those guys are always busy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they are. Out our show. Now, none of those bands are going to be able to, if, if we have a show, I guarantee they have a show somewhere in some sold out room in the middle of nowhere, you know, but uh but it would be, I, I definitely want to do the song because I really appreciate all those guys and their writing styles and, and you know, lyrically, they all do cool stuff. And it's just be it'd be fun because, you know, I mean, uh, I guess I'm the, in, in a sense, a bit of an elder statesman. <laughs> yeah. I'm the old guy uh, at this no, point. I'm in my 50s. And uh, and those guys are just carrying on and crushing it like because I've just always wanted people to stay in and around Annapolis and promote and, 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 and show that there's great stuff coming out of this little historic town. And those guys crush it. I mean, well, I mean, obviously, Ballyhoo's from more from Baltimore than, than Annapolis. But but Baltimore, this whole area, I always said that it was the kind of like the, the Bermuda Triangle in the music industry. It's like D.C. to Baltimore to Annapolis. Bands would literally skip over our market when they were touring. Like, even in the 80s and the 90s, you know, if they, they might hit D.C., but typically if they don't hit the 930 Club, they'll they'll go straight from, you know, to Philly and New York. They'll just pass right by us. So 
I was like it, people that stayed here and, and, and kept it that way, you know, and promoted the area. Well, like in Bel Air, Maryland, it's it's basically all cover bands. Is that kind of the feel down in Annapolis where there's more of a cover circuit? Because I, I, not, and I mean, at first, when in the in the eighties, mid eighties, when I first started playing, that's it, it was. But no, I mean, I think there's a huge resurgence, like pressing strings, all these amazing local the original bands out, yeah. out of Annapolis. It's just, there's no venues anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all of the venues have closed. There's literally like three, four places maybe to play a show unless you're doing acoustic kind of bass stuff. And there's still plenty of that. You know, the, the guy with the PA on a stick playing cover songs. And, you know, I, I've got the, the, a huge amount of respect for the people that do those three hour gigs and, and remember hundreds of songs i'm like i, I don't know right i some of my friends that i've been playing with you know for years and, and i watch them do it and i'm just like how do you how do you even get through a night let alone do it four or five nights a week and and crush it every time like it blows my mind my only theory on that is that a lot a lot of the guys that i know that do it they've been doing it for a very long time so for the yeah. entire time i've been doing original music I did. I wasn't learning cover songs. So I don't know them. Yeah. So now for me, it feels very daunting. Just the idea of learning 35, 40 cover songs. I, I'm blown away by them. And, and all of them do it in such a really good way. It's a, but you've got to be close with your couch concerts. You learned a lot of songs. Yeah, but no, it's that I didn't learn them. I, I literally was reading them as I was playing. Okay. I set them up with lyrics and the little you know, letter above right. them. And I simplified them all too. <laughs> so I could figure, you know, play them. But even the ones that I love the most, I, I, I don't I can't, I, if I, you asked me to play one right now, I'd probably go back and play a song like that I play, learned when I was a kid, like Deep Ellen Blues by Grateful Dead. <laughs> I got like seven of those that I kind of run through. Like yeah. I'll play a Dead Flowers. I can, I can do, I can do that. I can do a, uh Ebony Eyes by Stevie Wonder, maybe without messing up. Um, other than that, like, I can't think of what I would play as a cover song. I, I don't know any. I don't know any. <laughs> so, are you allowed to say? Do you have a release date for seconds? Uh, I wish I knew. So we've got all the masters in now. We're setting things up to be able to get the stuff out. Once, once we get, and I'm we're very close to at least getting the downloads out to people who did the the campaign. Like really close, and that's my first goal. That's actually. That's the most important thing I want to do. I want to get people the stuff that they paid for a year ago. Right. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Because uh, people who ordered CDs, that'll take a little longer. But I can, I can get downloads out right away. So email, you know, I think it's four or 600 people or something. I got to send out 600 emails with the, you know, the record. And then got to order the CDs. Albums are going to take nine months to get done. Yeah. And and then get some shirts done. I'm doing some paintings. I've already delivered a couple of those. I have a couple of shows I have to do at people's houses. So I want to fulfill all that stuff. That's my biggest thing. When the record comes out to the rest of the world, I don't even really care because I want to take care of those people. And and they'll get the download of the whole record, but but everybody else won't. Like we're gonna be putting out song by song because you put out a whole album on a streaming platform, right? You put out, you've done one song and then wasted the rest of them. So you really got to put them out one by one and streaming. And even that's starting to get, it, things are starting to change again. And so it's interesting. I mean, cassettes are coming back. CDs are coming back. It's, things are starting to be a little weird. And that's why I wanted to make a record too, because so many people just do singles. 
Yeah. You know? It's like, all right, let's let's ignore what everybody's doing and just do what we feel compelled to do and do it for us. And hopefully somebody will dig it. <laughs> I don't I don't know if this was the right approach or not, but the, the record that I had just done, I released everything as a single, then three EPs, and then the album. But it's all the same songs, basically, just in different formats. Right. Because I knew people weren't really paying attention or that much of uh, attention. Yeah. That could I mean, be a well, way Beck, to... Well, like Beck's last uh, record, Colors, or uh, I think that was his last record. Maybe, maybe he did one after Colors, but Colors, it's phenomenal. It's one of my favorite records he's ever done. And there's a guy who does goes all over the place because yeah. my other favorite record by him is Sea Change, which is literally the most mellow, you know, morose record he ever put out. And then this one is like straight up pop and like up and production. It's so good. But he put out singles and he put out singles for like a year and then released the whole thing as a record. Now... We don't have like nearly that kind of fan base or that amount of people that even care about what we're doing. But we're, I don't you know, know man. Gonna, I'm gonna, excited. We're gonna try to maximize it as best we can, I guess, in that business realm. And, and and that's my manager. He 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 understands this world, and I just kind of I take his advice because he's rarely been off that that I know of, and he always sees what's coming and. So yeah, we'll we'll at least get this get the downloads out to everybody first. Did I read on Wikipedia correctly that there'll be possibly a tour with Candlebox? Oh no, I don't know about that. I don't know how that happened. I mean, our guitar player Island plays with Candlebox, so okay, he, he goes out and tours with them, and uh, and he, you know he's on the last record that he put out. So you know, it it, it would be cool. But awesome. I, I don't. It's no, there's nothing planned. I, I would love to do it. I think it'd be a fun show. Um, but the, our old guitar player Matt rejoined our band, so he'd been filling in whenever Island's gone. And then once we did the record, I was like, you know, we might we might need another guitar player to play this, right? You know, I mean, this is kind of a cool record. I, I'd like to really get this, even though I, I mean, all of our records had some production to them that we were never going to really match with a four piece band anyway. Like right. you're on stereo, and there's no keyboards and. But I was like, yeah, what do you guys think? And they're like, well, if we were going to have anybody back in the band, it would be Matt because you know, we're all friends. And so so now we're a five-piece uh, at some points. And then when Island's gone with Candlebox, we're back to a four-piece. <laughs> well, Jimmy, you continue to be an inspiration for sure. Oh, I, I mean, playing with you back in 2003, 2004, whatever it was, I, I feel like our band needs a redemption because... <laughs> It was one of those moments where you play with a band and you're just like, yeah, we got to get our stuff together, guys. Like, we're, we're just not there. We do not belong on the stage. You guys were awesome then. You're awesome now, man. So I appreciate you doing this interview and I wish you all, all right, the success with it. the record. Hey, man, thanks for, you know, giving giving people, not, not me, because I mean, probably people are sick of me, mm -hmm. but <laughs> just giving people a voice and spreading out, you know, spreading good vibes. I and mean, that's what it's all about, right? It's, yeah. it, uh, that's what I always loved, why I stayed here and why I loved it. It was, there was an, it wasn't about competition. It was always about, you know, collaborating and, and, and lifting everybody up around you. And that's what we, you know, in the heyday with Chicken Shack, almost, almost 30 years ago, that's what we were doing. And, and that's what I like about what I see now. And so you're you're part of that. And that that's awesome. I appreciate it, man. Thank yeah. thank you for your time tonight. Right on, brother. Hey, laugh a lot. Bang. <laughs> and now for my favorite track from Jimmy's Chicken Shack. This is called Sitting with the Dog.
with the dog Like a bump upside along Yeah, I'm sitting with the dog 